Section 91 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Hampton. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Section 91. Self-Mutilation in Accident Insurance, Part 1. To the superficial observer, it may seem incredible that intentional, self-inflicted wounds, causing mutilation of the person or serious disablement, should ever occur. The old army surgeon, however, will recall many an instance where, for the purpose of obtaining a furlough or a discharge from service, such maiming has been practiced. The writer has in mind a case which occurred in the early part of our late war, where a soldier, a Bohemian, having feigned epilepsy without success, shot off his index or trigger finger, hoping thereby to obtain his discharge. He claimed that the injury was purely accidental, and it having been proven intentional, he then shot himself dead. So far from being uncommon or of recent occurrence, we have only to recall the fact that in the days of the Roman Empire, the cutting off of one's thumb was practiced to an alarming extent by those who were forced into the military service. And hence we have the term poltroon, which is derived from pollux truncatus. It then becomes, in civil as well as in military life, simply a question of motive, not a few instances have occurred where self-inflicted wounds by defaulters have been produced with the intention of simulating an assault by robbers, thereby hoping to divert suspicion from the real thief. Sometimes the mere love of notoriety has been a sufficient motive. In all such cases, however, the wounds are usually of a superficial nature and exhibit more serious harm done to the clothing than to the person. On the introduction of accident insurance, a broad field was opened up to the speculative insurance swindler, and he has not been slow to avail himself of it. At first, the indemnity extended only to a given sum per week in the event of wholly disabling accidental injuries. More recently, the insurance companies have widened the range of benefits so as to pay one-half, one-third, or some other proportionate part of the principal sum insured under the policy in the event of loss by accident of a hand or a foot or the sight of an eye. By affecting insurance in several different companies so as to cover but a short period of time, especially by the purchase of accident tickets, a large aggregate amount can be obtained at a trivial cost. To a person who has never had his attention directed to this subject, it doubtless would be an almost overwhelming surprise were he to examine for himself the records and files of the claims department of accident insurance companies and learn for the first time the extent of the impostures therein noted and the ingenuity displayed in attempting to bring them to a successful issue. Often with, and sometimes without the assistance of an action at law, an occasional swindle is, in part at least, successfully accomplished. But as a general rule, its true character is exposed, and the chief actors not infrequently come to grief. We propose giving a few illustrative cases and will let the first introduce himself by copying his notice of injury as written to the company in which he carried $10,000 accident insurance. 
Chicago, July 10th, 1893. Mr. Rodney Dennis, Secretary. Dear Sir, On the evening of July 4th last, while in my room alone, I started to load my revolver preparatory to celebrating the day by shooting, as my roommates and friends were doing. While so engaged, I dropped it accidentally and it was discharged, the ball entering my left hand and literally tearing it to pieces, breaking three fingers also. I will not be able to resume the discharge of my duties for thirty days yet. I do solemnly swear this, the above, to be a true statement of facts. Let me hear from you soon, won't you, please? Yours truly. On receipt of this letter, the usual blank forms were sent to him, upon which to present his claim. He wrote again as follows. Chicago, July 16, 1893. Honorable Rodney Dennis, Secretary. Dear Sir, please permit me to acknowledge receipt of your indemnity blanks. As I do not know yet how long it will be before I can return to work, will it not be a good idea to wait until then, before sending in my claim, or shall I fill it out now and send to you? Another thing I wish to ask, my expenses here for a living are about $100 per month, and as my physician informs me that it will be at least four or five and possibly six weeks before I can begin to use my hands, I would much prefer going home. It is cheaper, and besides, I can see my folks. Now then, if I do that, what steps must I take toward collecting my indemnity? I am, with the greatest respect, yours truly. The insurance company sent these letters to its Chicago agency, and this led to a full investigation of the case. The injury was apparent, and its severity was substantially as alleged. It was ascertained that Hicks was insured in several companies, and that one company had settled with him. In effecting that settlement, it was learned that he had made statements as to the manner in which the alleged accident happened, which were materially different from what appeared in his letters to Secretary Dennis. A sharp cross-examination of the claimant followed, which resulted in his utter confusion. He tried to cover his falsehoods by repeating other and more flagrant ones, until he was completely overwhelmed with the hopelessness of the situation, and in his demoralization he admitted that the whole affair was not accidental at all but was a scheme deliberately planned and carried out for the purpose of defrauding the insurance companies. Later on, upon more fully realizing the seriousness of the situation in which he was involved, he sought to make amends by writing out a frank confession, giving details and particulars, from which we make the following extracts. 2. The Traveler's Insurance Company The idea of working the insurance companies was developed in my mind last winter. My plan then was merely self-destruction, but as the scheme grew, and as I came to see by a careful study of them what the policies covered, I recognized a chance to make what I'd been looking for, namely, big money for myself by losing a hand accidentally. And so I increased my line of insurance accordingly to $20,000, and had I been successful, I would have collected $7,500 for the loss of my left hand. I was perfectly satisfied to part with it for that price, and I was disgusted when I found that the shot I'd put through my hand had not hopelessly crushed it, and I did all I could to induce the surgeon who attended me to amputate it anyway. Now please do not imagine me a fool, or insane, or a man who has acted hastily, for I have an active brain, a perfectly sound mind, and I gave many serious hours to the perfection of my scheme. At the time of this occurrence, Mr. H. was about 22 years of age, 
of genteel appearance, good address, a ready writer, fairly well-educated, and occupied a responsible official position at the International Exposition then being held in Chicago. It is seldom that a person guilty of a crime of this nature will come forward and make a clean breast of it, as was done in this instance, even though confronted with indisputable evidence against him. At the most, there can be obtained only a tacit admission or a feeble denial of guilt. As a rule, the final consideration of each case depends on its circumstantial evidence, and by that alone it must be weighed in most of the illustrative cases we present in this chapter. Only a brief outline of these cases need be given, for it is our object at this time to disclose the nature of the injuries sustained and the manner in which they were inflicted, rather than to produce evidence going to show that they were intentional and not accidental. At the Lyons New York agencies of two insurance companies, one BVD purchased accident tickets to the total amount of $12,000 insurance to cover 24 hours from date at a cost of $1 premium. The tickets expired at 7 o'clock p.m. on January 3, 1890. At 6.50 p.m. of that day, his right foot and leg were crushed by the wheels of a passing freight train. The injured man said, I was standing at the crossing in Lyons, waiting for a train to pass. About one half had gone by when my coattail caught and threw me under the train. The injury necessitated amputation about four inches above the ankle joint. His insurance entitled him to one-third of the principal sum insured in the event of the accidental loss of one foot. Investigation showed that Dunham was but little known in that locality. He had no money and had borrowed a dollar to pay his fare to Syracuse. He probably used the borrowed dollar to purchase the insurance tickets. The alleged accident occurred in the dark and when there was no eyewitness. He had been a cripple from childhood, the foot being paralyzed and often requiring the aid of crutches. It was generally believed that the injury was deliberately planned. He gladly accepted a small sum of money in lieu of that to which he would have been entitled had the claim been an honest one, and went on his way rejoicing. W.J.C. of Fulton, Kentucky, aged 31 years, sustained injuries of the left hand and wrist resulting in amputation at middle third of forearm. His account of alleged accident is as follows. In starting to board a railway train for Mayfield, Kentucky on the 21st day of September, 1892, at about 10 o'clock p.m., I caught my foot under a sidetrack rail and fell forward under the smoking car. In falling, I struck my head against side of car, rendering me unconscious for 20 or 30 seconds. When I regained consciousness, I began to push myself from under the coach and off the track. But before I could do so, my left hand was caught by trucks of coach three or four inches above the wrist and crushed so badly as to require amputation, which was done about two hours after the accident occurred. It was very dark at the time. No one saw him fall, but his cries were heard and prompt assistance reached him. He had recently taken out accident insurance to the amount of $16,000, some of it ticket insurance covering only two days. He was without means to pay ordinary living expenses and assigned his insurance tickets to his surgeons to secure payment for medical attendance. Orders of attachment by creditors were soon served on the several insurance companies to answer as garnishees, and there was a lively scramble to secure the payment of what had evidently been regarded by his creditors as worthless accounts. Compromised settlements were effected with his creditors, 
what little they thus obtained being regarded by them as so much clear gain. One AJC of Hiawatha, Kansas, obtained $18,000 accident insurance in two-day tickets written by three different companies. His story was, I was riding in a buggy carrying a gun. Team shied near a railroad bridge, and in my effort to prevent colliding with one of the posts in the bridge, the gun was discharged, the charge passing through left leg near ankle joint, which resulted in amputation of foot. An investigation followed, which satisfied all who had to do with it that the claim was not an honest one. WSF of Cooter Sport, Pennsylvania, 40 years of age, invested a dollar in the purchase of $6,000 accident insurance covering two days. While this insurance was in force, February 26, 1891, he took a shotgun and went out into the open fields. His statement was, I was going down a steep hill and slipped and fell down. In trying to save myself, the gun was discharged and a charge of shot passed through my left hand, necessitating amputation at the wrist joint. There was no eyewitness. Report of investigation states that the place where this occurred was as good as one as could be selected if the person sought to avoid being seen. There were some boys 25 or 30 rods distant, but they were hidden from view by a growth of brush. The injured man was without means of support and hopelessly in debt. Numerous garnishee writs were at once served by creditors who hoped to benefit by the insurance. Investigation made it sufficiently clear that the shooting was intentional. FCM of Hastings, Nebraska, age 42 years, obtained $26,000 accident insurance, it being placed in five different companies. At about 9 o'clock p.m., June 17, 1890, he sustained bodily injuries requiring amputation of his left hand. He relates the occurrence as follows. At the O&M Railroad crossing on Hastings Avenue, I tripped on the sidewalk, pitched forward, and in trying to save myself, my left arm was crushed by wheels of a train then passing. It was quite dark at the time, no eyewitnesses. His reason for taking so much accident insurance was that he was afraid of dogs biting him. Some of this insurance was for one day only, and of course was obtained at a trifling cost. The story of falling under the train, as alleged, was not credited by those who were familiar with the locality and all the circumstances surrounding the so-called accident. FDR, of Indianapolis, Indiana, aged 19 years, told this story. I was in my room when a gun I was handling slipped out of my hand. In falling to the floor, the hammer must have struck against a piece of furniture with force enough to cock and let fall the hammer. The charge of shot entered my left hand, tearing it so badly as to require amputation above the wrist. He had first obtained accident insurance in three companies amounting to $16,000. He tried to obtain more in one of the companies, but the agent declined to write it. He then purchased at a gunsmith's a single-barrel shotgun, for which he paid $10. After he had shot his hand off, he sent the gun back with request to return him the $10, which was done. The case had all the earmarks of an intentional, self-inflicted injury and was so treated. R.P. of Wichita, Kansas, a plasterer, $20,500 accident insurance, says it happened to him in this manner. I was out hunting and had sat down to rest, and as I arose, my legs were somewhat cramped, and as there was some ice and snow on the ground, I fell, and in my fall, the gun went off. My hand was so badly shattered it had to be taken off at once just above the wrist. 
Another person had been out with him, but at the time of the shooting was on the opposite side of the hedge, so there was no observer of the alleged accident, but he was conveniently near at hand to render assistance in the emergency. On investigation, it was regarded as a cleverly planned self-shooting affair. End of section 91.